and greetings from the Mirror Zone. I'm Bryce Skidmore. And I'm David Leskin. And we're here to talk to you today about Minority Report. Yeah, it's it's one of Philip K. Dick's more interesting stories. Uh, a lot's been made of it over the years. There's actual use of pre-crime, the thing that gets discussed in, in the book, of a method of policing. And there's a movie made by Steven Spielberg, which we also watched as well. Exactly. And a, a TV show that came out in 2015, which we didn't. So yeah, uh, no, there's uh, incidents of uh, pre-crime happening in uh, in police offices in uh, police departments around the world. That's right, and basically in the same way that science fiction a lot of times is able to predict trends in the future and, and fascinating ideas that end up being realer than science fiction, Minority Report delves pretty heavily into what would seem like very metaphysical ideas about the acts of choice, about trying to prevent crime, and about the consequences of both of those. No, exactly. I feel like the story complicates a lot of... Simultaneously complicates what choice is, also kind of, like, illuminates what it is. Like, depending on how you look at the end. But we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there, and uh, we'll, we'll get there by way of Philip K. Dick. We will. Um, so, uh, plot synopsis? Sure. Uh, the story is all about... Uh, John Anderton. He's uh, the head of the pre-crime division. They're basically a policing task force that's able to use information gleaned from special precogs. They're these individuals that are able to receive ideas and events from the future before they happen. And the pre-crime task force is able to follow up on the leads for these crimes and prevent them from happening. Exactly. And not just prevent them from happening, but arrest the individual responsible and hold them accountable for a crime they may not even ever commit. Yes, and uh, they get sent, all it says is to detention camps, is where it says they go. Yes, and, and from the little bits of the book that we, we glean, or from the short story, we find out that these detention camps are basically just not the futuristic utopia that the rest of everybody else live in. You know, their machines might not work as well there, but it doesn't sound particularly foreboding, menacing, or... It's not a punishment, it's just no. a solution. Yeah, no, and it's like, and we don't really get that, too, until the end, where it's like we find out that these aren't really the worst places to be. But, you know, you start out with that, and it sounds super dystopic. It does. Uh, we, we've basically arrived in a world where crime is so bad that the solution people are willing to take is getting rid of that that choice to be able to commit the crimes in the first place. And, and what this leads to is the beginning of our story. Mm. Uh, John Anderton is, he's having to deal with outsiders coming in and taking over and he's feeling the effects of age. He's, he's realizing, you know, that his position may be in jeopardy and he's tasked with having to train his replacement. And mm. he's, he's very bitter well, resentful. Not about quite his replacement yet. Like, cause it's like, like, basically, he wants the job, and he's gonna get it, he knows, but it's like, you know, it's sort of an open secret between them, where it's like, you know, oh, I'm still in charge right now, and it's like, oh, but I'm gonna get your job later. Like, right, and and as John begins to show this up, up-and-coming guy around uh, the station mm. and show him the workings of Precog... Ed Whitworth, right? Yes, Ed Whitworth. Uh, he begins to distrust this man... 
you know, even though it's it's an unspoken uh, hatred between the two of them or animosity, he begins to suspect that this man is trying to take him down earlier than mm-hmm. sometime in the future taking over his job. Well, no, and it's like the, the inciting incident, especially. That's the thing where it's like, he's someone's got it in for me. That's right. He He's taking Ed around the, the precog department. He shows him the machinery and the special individuals, the precogs, capable of making these predictions. And as he's doing all of this, a prediction pops out and implicates him for a future crime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously being in the position he's in where he's able to act on this data before anyone else finds out. He begins going forward, trying to clear his name, trying to prevent the crime from happening and to find out who, if anyone, is actually setting him up. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's instead of doing the thing that uh, we would expect him to do, which is turn himself in, he decides to to let his wife in on this, who also works in pre-crime. And he suspects like she and Whitworth might be talking to each other, like she might be the one helping him frame him. And he's just like, I got to figure out what's up. He tells her anyways, which he kind of regrets later. And, you know, she's just like, well, who would you be murdered? Like, you know, he's like, you know, it's Whitworth. I mean, he's younger and he's going to take my job. And, you know, he hasn't said it, but I, you know, he's like, I suspect that, you know, you and he have a thing going on. And it's not even until later he like reads the name and it's someone he's never heard of. Yeah. And and once he figures all this out, that the situation's impossible, that he's seemingly being led towards killing someone for no reason. Uh, He's taken in by different groups of people, the people chasing him from the organization, people who are colluding so on, on the so-called conspiracy. He meets his wife again, who for a while seems to be guilty. And eventually he finds out about the minority report and how the actual system of uh, precog actually works. The predictions are not foolproof. Mm. They're all they're predicted by three different individuals. And it's sort of like a fact-checking system where the computer is able to look at all of their predictions. Yeah, it averages all of their predictions and prophecies and gives you the most likely scenario that's going to occur. That's right. And and what he finally ends up finding out through chasing down the person who is trying to frame him and meeting the person who he's supposed to kill is he's presented with seemingly situations where no matter what, the events are going to play out and society will be doomed. Or the events won't play out, and he'll be doomed. Mm-hmm. But either way, he's he he struggles with with fate and destiny, and uh, and trying to figure out which of the predictions that were given are going to be the true one. Exactly. Or, and and can he even prevent them? No, and it's um in the end he he essentially decides to just go through with it. He murders uh, Leonard Kaplan, the person he was said to have been murdering, and he does it. Uh, Kaplan, who's a a really unsavory character, he's a an army general in this weird dystopic future yes. who um like his whole end game is to end pre-crime and sort of take over like basically to to take their place and to end the practice and the way he's playing his game is very theatrical when anderton meets him in the beginning he's it's all suits mm-hmm. and then later on when he's uh, the general is presenting in front of a crowd he dresses in full mil- military dress and, and sort of tries to inspire this image of patriotism and freedom and invoke that against the act of pre-crime and uh, ends up meeting his doom that way. Yeah, I really enjoyed this story. I'm glad we did it. Um... I am too. And and I really enjoyed, with the lens of having read the story, rewatching the movie again, yeah. 
it, it, it's played into a cycle. You know, you have your idea of what the story's about, you watch the movie, you read the story, and you watch the movie again, and you come out with all of these different uh, questions, you know, even more questions each, each time after reading or watching it. Exactly. Um, what are your initial thoughts on the story? I, I mean, I, there a couple of different things came up for me when I was reading the story and watching the movie, uh, the ideas of prisons of the mind and prisons of society. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the way this police force works is not just that they're that accurate, that they can catch people before they commit these crimes. It's that society knows that they have the ability to do this. And, and during the events of the story, they say that uh, nobody has died of a violent premeditated crime for five years yeah it's shocking to people even seeing violence in the streets mm. and it's like i love that bit too where like anderson talks about that it's like no one's died of a violent crime in five years and that's on us he says where it's like not even really it's kind of weird like that you know this whole idea of the precognizant folk like being able to see murder the way they do whenever a murder happens like now the blame is shifted no so this is a thing that i was thinking of uh, about um just sort of these predominant theories that we have that are rolling around in academic circles and just everywhere about uh, the notion of imprisonment and what that actually means. And I think that Philip K. Dick actually takes something that like um, Michel Foucault thought of and like sort of puts it to a new degree that I find rather interesting. And I find it interesting because I feel like it complicates the virtue of the thing that I saw, where it's like when Foucault talked about it, I felt it was monstrous, and I still kind of do, but when viewed through this lens, it seemed different. But I'm thinking about uh, from Discipline and Punishment, The Birth of the Prison, uh, Michel Foucault goes through this whole thing about what we do in prisons, like the, the various ways throughout history that they have been kept. And one of the things that he brings up is uh, a curious uh, function of architecture called a panopticon. It's a prison that is circular, uh, designed around a central monolith, and every cell is blocked off from each other, but is facing the tower of observation. So basically, it's like being in solitary. You can't see who's on either side of you. You can only see the observation tower, and the observation tower is constructed in such a way that you never know if someone's watching you. So it it encourages the best behavior because you are always, you are never sure when you are being surveilled. And that creates something in the prisoner's mind that is akin to self-policing. Like when basically the best thing to do is instead of having a cop there all the time, is you just have, you make the person their own cop. You put the cop in their head and they're always like terrified as to whether or not they're being watched. Um, but here's some what Michel Foucault said about the Panopticon. The Panopticon is a privileged place for experiments on men, for analyzing with complete certainty the transformations that may be obtained from them. The fact that it should have given rise, even in our own time, to so many variations projected or realized is evidence of the imaginary intensity that, had, that it has possessed for almost 200 years. It is a type of location, it, it is a type of location of bodies in space, of distribution of individuals in relation to one another, of hierarchical organization, of disposition of centers and channels of power, of definition of instruments and modes of intervention of power, which can be implemented in hospitals, workshops, schools, or prisons. And we definitely see that in Minority Report, the the panopticon effect. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, without needing the watchtowers and solitary confinement because you're in a system Mm -hmm. where everyone knows that they're always being observed. Less so in the movie because that 
that's mostly violent murders. But yeah. in in the short story in in uh, the Minority Port, we actually learned that all kinds of crimes come in over the pre-crime unit. It's not mm. just violent murders. It's just that those have almost entirely been eradicated because people know that there are people who have tried to commit these that have already been mm. caught. It's a deterrent. Mm. They know that they're always being watched. Exactly. And, like, somehow, like, do you mind if I read a bit? Please. Somehow it's, like, even more of a real deterrent than the deterrence we still have. Because, you know, you would think to yourself, well, it's like, well, we have laws. Like, you know, we have laws and prescribed punishments for breaking them. So what's, like, what's the big deal? Like, you know, how does this work but not something else? Yeah, so when... uh. Um, Anderton is taking Whitwer around and showing him everything. He shows him the precogs and he says, with the aid of your precog mutants, you've bo- or, uh, Whitwer says, with the aid of your precog mutants, you've boldly and successfully abolished the post-crime punitive system of jails and fines. As we all realize, punishment was never much of a deterrent and could scarcely have afforded comfort to a victim already dead. So there's this weird thing where like, this panopticon that they have built is not just of space, but it's of time. You know, the things in the watchtowers metaphor are the precogs, they are mediated by the machines that interpret them, and then the cops sort of work off of that. And, you know, we don't have prisons or jails anymore. Like, it's just kind of different. We have these camps where we send people who are going to do shit. But the whole, like, the observation tower, like, there is no way to know when you're being looked in on or, like, how it's going to happen. Because, like, you know, we have, like, in the movie, the red ball, brown ball situation where brown balls come out if it's a, uh, if it's a premeditated murder and red ones if it's a crime of passion. In this scenario, like, it's not just that the person is seeing so much into your cell or, like, into your living space, but they're seeing into the future of your living space. Like, they're seeing your path as it's going to go. So it's like they're they're looking from a vantage point that is so far beyond what we can comprehend. And to be fingered from that position is utterly terrifying. Yeah, and, and the fact that the, I guess, uh, the negatives of this system wouldn't have even been brought to light if this special uh, situation hadn't happened... Mm where a pre-crime employee is involved in a crime prediction of their own circumstances because they have the ability to change it as soon as they reach, you know, as soon as they've received the the prediction. Mm. A lot of these other people, it's true, they're they're sent into camps or or sent off to reservations to live their lives, but, you know, the general public doesn't get any of that sort of decision. It's either beyond the straight and narrow or, you know, you're not part of society anymore. Mm. And, And that helps people to be able to police themselves. Yeah, no, and I think that there's something very interesting about this society that gets created, and it's like, when we get into quotes, we can get into it further. But the fact that it does seem to be, as a society, completely decentralized from any one person. Like, it seems like Kaplan's endgame is to be that one person. Like, he wants to take back the authoritarian singular position. But, like, we're not, like, you know, in the future, we're not governed by that. Almost everything's by committee. We're not run by a president. Like, we're run by a Senate alone. Uh, We have sort of branch departments that are supposed to also check the Senate. We have pre-crime police and we have the army. Right. And in, in pre-crime, like even the prophecies are done in by committee. You don't just have one. You have three you have three precogs putting out prophecies that are compared the one to the other. So it's like it's all a collaborative effort and everybody polices themselves that way. Right. Like, and that was Kaplan's big mistake. He assumed that appealing to the court of public opinion was was going to be the avenue that made a difference and gave him the control. And what he didn't realize is, is they were all in the panopticon already, mm. and it was completely useless to appeal to the court of 
of, of opinion because of this collaboration that everyone is doing, you know, silently yeah. to, to go along with the system. Now, there's almost like a beyondness of human subjectivity that happens in this story where it's like, because we, we have that dropped on us that like, you know, there is no, there's no murder. Like the last murder was five years ago and that's because the cops didn't get there in time to stop it. And this murder that happens at the end is a direct result of someone trying to fuck with the system to some someone actually trying to game the system and it doesn't work out in their favor. But like really weirdly, it lets us devote our minds to different problems and different ways of thought. And what I think is interesting is in this future world, the biggest problem is not murder, it's government upheaval. It's like the idea that someone wants to take power for themselves on a massive level, like in, in a government form by fucking with their institutions. And because we live in a world where we don't have to worry about who's getting like ganked all, all the time, like it's you can actually devote some resources to stopping that plot. Like, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I think it also illustrates pretty well the difference between the short story and the movie where in the movie I would say that the government or agencies aren't considered the bad guy at all. You know, mm -hmm. they're... They they factor pretty heavily into pre-crime even being distributed at all. You know, we we, mm. we see judges and uh, justices all being involved in each case as it's brought up. And I think that, you know, there's a different level of societal collaboration into making the precogs work in the movie than there was in the short story. Yeah, you're right. Because, like, in, in the short story, it's very, like, you know, well, we trade with other government agencies when we want to. It's only the only two people, the only two uh, entities that have access to the precogs' visions are the army gets a copy and the pre and the the pre-crime unit gets a copy yeah so basically pre-crime gets it first that duplicate is run off to the army so that there's a check and balance both ways there the senate doesn't get one it's very interesting how it, the two things both remind me of of different uh, similar works that are in their same medium and around their same time period obviously the movie reminds you a lot more of post 9 11 mm -hmm. this idea of you know if we if we put these sorts of people in airports and we do this sort of profiling and all yeah. that kind of stuff that we'll have security and the short story reminds me a lot more of the Cold War mindset, mm. maybe somewhat of the RoboCop anti-corporatist uh, or, or like um, corporations taking over instead yeah. of governments. It, the short story kind of falls in line more with those sorts of ideas and fears than I think the movie does. No, you're totally right. And it's weird, like, right after you said that, too, I was like, wasn't it just a couple years later that Rendition came out? Like, where, like, this was a period in our history, like, after 9-11, where we were, we were super concerned with, like, the Patriot Act and yes. watching people who could or could not be committing crimes or to acts of terrorism. So, like, there's this, you know, really weirdly, like, the, the film was playing off of this very moment. Like, yeah. Or that very moment. Yeah, and, and in a weird way of um, art influencing reality and reality being influenced back and forth between art, we now have actual pre-crime units in this country that are run off of different things. There's versions like that, that they're trying out involving uh, crowdsourced, you know, report your neighbors and that sort of thing. And there's geographical data looking at areas of, of high crime and making predictions about people based on their socioeconomic place and those are all sort of leading towards the same kind of system in a way it's if you know that security cameras are on you at all time and that typing anything into a browser could alert the government about suspicion about you you're less likely to do a crime aren't you yeah and weirdly i don't think that there's like i mean obviously in a perfect world like i don't see a problem with that and honestly like i feel like i 
like I myself would answer for anything if someone would be like, why did you Google search this? I'd be like, well, here's why. Like, you know, go fuck yourself. Like, I mean, if you want to look at my browser history, you're welcome to. I haven't been anywhere that like, like I wouldn't denounce where it's like, I'm, you're just going to have to look through some really weird porn. Right. I, I mean, at least with thought crimes and the idea of, of these kinds of things of, of people being policed by the mind of, of worrying about people judging them and that sort of stuff, you can defend yourself. It's all well and good to say, you know, well, I don't have anything to hide. They can always come look. But the people in these stories, the Minority Report, they're never given this option because they haven't mm. committed the crime they're being accused of yet. Yeah. No, actually, uh, with that, do you want to get into some quotes? Let's do it. Yeah. Um, Because that, like, reminds me straight up of one of the earliest quotes, um, where uh, they had come to the descent lift. As it carried them swiftly downward, Anderton said, you probably grasped the basic legalistic drawback to pre-crime methodology. We're We're taking in individuals who have broken no law. But they surely will, were affirmed with conviction. Happily, they don't, because we get them first, before they can commit an act of violence. So the commission of a crime itself is absolutely metaphysics. Uh, we, uh, we claim they're culpable. They, on the other hand, eternally claim they're innocent. And in a sense, they are innocent. Yeah, and that, that quote is, it's not exactly reused in the movie, but there's a couple instances of of trying to talk about the metaphysics of choice and fate, where Mm -hmm. one of the examples is rolling the ball off the table, where, uh, you know, Anderton rolls a ball, one of the the balls on the table, and uh, And Whitworth catches it. And Whitworth catches it, and, and, and Anderton asks him why he caught it, and Whitworth says, because it was going to fall. And Anderton shows him, well, it didn't fall because you caught it. So what what was the what was the factor in that that made it free will versus fate yeah no it was basically you chose to stop something from happening you chose to stop the the ball from falling you chose to not drop the ball exactly and it, it's it's a certainty that because of gravity and the way things have happened in the past the ball would have fallen but it also didn't because he caught it mm-hmm. and it, it's a good it's a good illustration of, of the theory behind free crime in my room no, and it's like, it's a thing that's like a consummation to Valley to be wished, in my opinion, where it's just like, these people have found a way to turn the idea, to, to turn the act of murder into a thought exercise. Like, it is, it's metaphysics. It's something that's even less worth talking about. Like, like it's not even physics. It's just like, you know, it's a strange philosophical argument we have now. Like, right, and of course, it's it's not uh, intellectuals and uh, and people doing thought experiments that are making these sort of philosophical arguments it's people in suits and police officers mm. that are grappling with these issues but they're dealing with it on a very fundamental level of cause and effect exactly or at least yeah. they're telling themselves that that's what they're doing no and it's like it's super true like this is um actually do you mind if i read another thing Go. um this isn't from uh the story but this is from uh d.a miller's uh the novel and the police which if you like literary criticism, I check it out. It's um, a sort of this guy's a bit of a deconstructionist, and he likes to talk about like uh, you know the police and how they function in fiction, which is very interesting because you know we have police in a lot of stories, and we never really think to see like uh, commonalities in the way that they're used in plots. But I like I find it utterly fascinating, like because it's you know everything in literature means something. He says about stories like this. Um, Yet yeah, if these novels are detective stories, it is as we say, because they do not wish to be, 
This is a highly active truth. The text we have seen invokes the norms of detective fiction precisely to rework and pass beyond them. It moves from a story of police action to a story of human relationships in less, in less quote, specialized contexts. So, like, yeah, it's the idea of we start this sort of as, like, a police narrative, but then, like, it's like, now actually we're playing with something even bigger. Like, it starts off, it's like, oh, this is a detective story. And a lot of this does have aspects of a detective story because, you know, like Oedipus at the beginning of his play, like, when he gets the news where it's like, ah, there is a blood on the land, like, you know, because the murderer of Lias is still here. And he's like, well, I'm going to find him. He's not sure, he doesn't know yet that he's Lias. (laughs) The, the murder of Lias. Like. Right, and, and, and that is an interesting uh, trope in a lot of these different types of stories that, that, that ask the questions about how is the protagonist actually involved? And a lot of times what you find out is that they, even though they didn't know it, they were involved all along and are the key mm. to the solution. That's that's the weird thing where it's like, uh, yeah, and it's my favorite thing in uh, almost every like noir story is just like, you know, eventually, and also Philip K. Dick loves noir, as yes. we've seen from almost every adaptation of his. Like, he loves cops, he loves criminals, he loves high-tech and low-life, and that's a thing that almost all of his protagonists share in common, this guy especially, is like, you know, to be going through this problem and to discover that you are the hero. Like, to not even, like, to, but also, like, you know, in, in being labeled the villain, you discover you are the hero. Like... Yeah, and, and you know, this is... What you said before is true. Philip K. Dick loves showing people that they are not only the solution to their problems, but also the cause of them. Mm-hmm. Or that, you know, you, you can't be involved in fighting crime without becoming partner to crime. Yeah. No, because it's like you have, like, everything is, all languages based off of a slight differential. You know, you can't have a cop without a criminal. Like, the thing doesn't exist. However, in the and we talked about this where it's like, pre-crime, like, there is no antithesis that either of us can think of that is anything anti- antithetical to pre-crime. Pre-crime is like, almost semiotically stands on its own. It does. It stands outside the normal flow of uh, human interaction in a lot of ways, and, and it really dissolves sort of the entire commentary that we have be about post-crime, like what they said before, that there there was coming up with consoling the victims, with how do we treat these situations, and the solution is kind of a ground-up solution. It's, it's completely trying to destroy the system within which crime and punishment exist and trying to redefine it. Yeah, no, it's like, it's super weird, because then we have no, we have neither crimes nor prisons, but we have something weirder. Like... Yeah, and... and Everyone is a potential pre-crime suspect as well. And and as they said, everyone who's arrested from pre-crime or put into these, uh, you know, detention places, they'll be eternally decrying their innocence. And in their minds, they will always be innocent. Mm-hmm. No, and that's like, that's the thing that's even weirder to me is that like, like, wow, what an ingenious way to get around crime. Fraught with problematic language. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's trying to redefine the language of crime. But, but without actually having to have a crime occur in order to be able to make those definitions. Exactly. Their physical needs were taken care of automatically. They had no spiritual needs, vegetable-like. They muttered and dozed and existed. Their minds were dull, confused, lost in shadows. But not the shadows of today. The three gibbering, fumbling creatures with their enlarged heads and wasted bodies were contemplating the future. Is it? I think that's super interesting uh, for a couple of reasons. But first of all, it's like... 
it, it sort of points to like the probably one of the biggest differences between the short story and the adaptation based on it is like there's you know that whole chase scene where it's like he takes one of the precogs the one who like can sort of recite his minority report the one like who would have it if it's even there and you know she's she's very like she's kind of like touched but she's like very like kind of there like she seems to be like a sentient like she's like is it now like you know am i finally out of this drugged trip where i'm only seeing the future and she seems to have some agency and they all do in fact and they all have like a happy ending in the film right but philip k dick this is like the last time we like we talk about the precogs a bit but like it's in regards to the report they're still behind this veil of machinery throughout the entire story and i feel like that whole line is because you know we might have this compunction about well, how dare you do this to mentally ill people? And it's like, he's actually described them where, like, they're mutants to this point where, like, they're just all future sight. Their EMP lobe has taken over the the resources and, and ability of everything else. Yeah. And they're literally living, that's all they're doing, as they say, and this is they're living in the future. That's all that they do. And obviously, you know, number one, it's Spielberg for the movie, but number two, you have to flesh out characters. Mm. And obviously everyone's going to get fleshed out, including yeah. the precogs. And, and there is much more questioning of it in the movie of whether this is right or wrong when you mm. have these, you know, touched but still good-looking, normal, could-have-good-lives humans mm. who are being subjugated as opposed to the ones in the short story which are basically you know they mentioned a few times but for the most part people when they're first taken aback at the whole situation they do realize that there really is no other life for these people and they're basically tools no and it's like it's really weird because like in the story like like yeah they are basically tools but it's like i almost think they're more than that because like like we have this issue of whether or not in the film we have this issue of whether or not it's like ethical to keep these people um away from families and anything that they might want to do had they a will of their own which apparently they do right like so it is absolutely wrong in this scenario they almost seem transhuman where it's like their their thought like they have mutated to such a point where their thoughts are only of the future they live in the future so it's almost like this it's almost like if like humanity is all part of this really weird organism of hive minds right like they would be the the brain cells the aspects of humanity that can actually perceive the future so it's like they're kind of exactly where they need to be like right it, it it's one one of the things that the movie actually got right that i think that sort of applies backwards to the short story is that we mentioned that people deify the precogs and i really like what you said about them seeing transhumanists like they're the next state Mm. of human development you know mutants along the lines of the way the x-men are viewed Mm -hmm. that that this is a different kind of person Mm -hmm. and and we're like in like we were talking about earlier we're building in the story a different kind of world a world without murder and where the biggest problems that we have are not murder like it's it's this other shenanigans like and even if the movie had gone along the same route what they choose to do with these pre-crime uh the people who would have committed the crimes is that they're put into suspended animation they're actually being kept prisoner we're using Mm -hmm. resources to keep these people out of society. It's not like they can just, we prevent the crime and they go off and do something else. Mm-hmm. You could argue that the precogs in the movie themselves subjugated are then doing their same thing that's happened to them to other people. That's, oh, I didn't even think of that. Like the the utter mindfuck of it, like every time they finger someone in the state that they, and they can't control it. Like they're going to see the future and they're going to see murder. And like, yeah, basically they're just like, yeah, that person over there did it. And then that person gets locked away in this facility forever. Yeah. Is it a wonder that people 
I mean, it's definitely with more of a tinge of horror, but the people deify the precogs. I mean, you know, they 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 view life from a different vantage point as the rest of us. Oh shit! And I also just realized the the things the the immobilizers that the the precrime folks that they put on them. So if the precogs are deified, whenever you catch a perp and you collar them, you don't collar them. You put a halo on them. <laughs> yeah, and they join the ranks of the precog. Yeah. So. But yeah, no, that's like, that is, I never even thought of that, but it's just this vicious cycle, like, in the film that actually makes me think that, even though the film has a happy ending, the film, I think, is way more dystopic. Like, Yeah, it's all well and good that, that those three got a good ending, and then you might even say that Anderton and his wife do as well in the movie, but hmm. what are the implications for this society that has, at least in DC, moved on from this level of crime, and now everyone just has to deal with it again? Sure, it's good for the individual, but the whole point of the short story was talking about who is more important, the individual or the society. Yeah. That's definitely one of the questions, and the movie just sort of leaves it in a, well, I guess the individual was more important in this situation. Yeah. But but it probably still is a dystopia away from the happy endings of that. Yeah. Um, was it? Uh, do you mind if I read a bit about... Kaplan. Please. So, um, was it, this is after Anderton has learned and pocketed the evidence that he is going to commit murder and he's going to murder a person named Leonard Kaplan. So he goes to his house to pack where he's met by a man who takes him in a car to a country estate and there's like a man in a suit with a cane, old dude, uh, and he's like, you know, I'm the person you were meant to murder. After Kaplan sort of realizes that there must be like some kind of problem because it's like, we've never met, there's like no reason this should be happening. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's like okay. Anderson tells him that there will. Anderson tells him that there will be no murder. Needless to say, there is no murder or intent to murder. I agree with you that there will be no murder. Kaplan agreed grimly. You'll be in police custody. I intend to make certain of that. Horrified, Anderton protested. You're taking me back there. If I'm in custody, I'll never be able to prove. I don't care what you prove or don't prove. Kaplan interrupted. All I'm interested in is having you out of the way. So, uh, yeah. For a moment, Kaplan seemed to waver. It's possible, he conceded, regarding Anderton steadily. Then he shook his head. I can't take the chance. If this is a frame against you, I'm sorry, but it's simply not my affair. Which, this is a thing that's interesting to me about, like, uh, so just, we find out later that Kaplan is full of shit, but, like, the thing that's interesting to me in this is, like, uh, it also reminds me of, like, when, after he leaves Kaplan, and he, like, uh, meets that dude who gives him some money, and he's like, go, here's a new ID, go hide. And he, like, checks into a hotel where the the night clerk immediately doesn't look at him. Because, like, I feel like in a world where this type of pre-crime exists, like, you don't want to get caught up in the machinations that look for it. So it's like, if you're the dude checking someone in, it's like, look, I'm not, I'm not about you. Like, you, here, thank you for your money, go take your room. Like, I don't want to be in anyone's vision. Just like, you know, Kaplan is like, look, you... I don't believe that you're going to kill me and someone may be trying to frame you, but that's not my fucking business because if they're fucking with pre-crime, then they're on another level. And, and it's a good... It, it ties back into what we were saying before about the... Panopticon. The yeah. Panopticon. It, we, we, we discussed a bit about the part where you the individual sees themselves and sees the tower looking down on them, but this illustrates much more the idea of society being... Um, you know, move people move away from other people so that they don't have, get involved with the crime. Mm-hmm. It's, these are the prisons of nobody wanting to be involved with yeah. or see anyone else because they have their own life to worry about and their own self to worry about. No, and also really Woodley going to back to the Panopticon is like part of the way it's designed is that the prisoners can't see each other. They can only see the observation tower. 
So it's like this type of system of policing actually cuts you off from the person next to you while binding you to them a lot stronger. It's like a really weird thing. Right, and, and that's one of the ways we see that play out in this society. You wouldn't harm a hair of Kaplan's head. For the first time in history, pre-crime goes wrong. An innocent man is framed by one of those cards. Maybe there have been other innocent people, right? It's quite possible, Anderton admitted listlessly. Maybe the whole system can break down. Sure, you're not going to commit a murder. And maybe none of them were. Is that why you told Kaplan you wanted to keep yourself outside? Were you hoping to prove the system wrong? I've got an open mind if you want to talk about it. Oh, and that's like... That's very interesting to me. Like the, There were multiple conversations after meeting Kaplan where the people in his employ mm. and other people, they're sort of confused by the fact that he didn't actually do this because everyone has bought into this pre-crime system. So it's everyone's really trying to contemplate what the implications of this are. Yeah. No, and it's like, I think it's interesting too because this guy um, who poses this, like we obviously find out later that he's in Kaplan's employ. So like there is, there's a game behind it, but it's also like, I wonder, like, this must be, like, a widespread thought. Or, like, if you live in a world with pre-crime, you must have at least thought this once. Like, where it's like, you know, what it... Like, because, yeah, there have been no murders, but it's like, how do how do we know for a fact that everyone who you detain ha- will will or will not, in fact, commit a murder? Right, and it's, and it's this whole incident with Anderton that brings to light that given the opportunity to know about your crime beforehand and not just have people outside of you stop it, is it possible that these people were all innocent? Mm-hmm. That, that maybe they wouldn't have done it. That given choices, people might do one thing or might do another thing. No, and it's like, I think that the narration also comes down uh, somewhat strangely on the side of... Uh, it, it comes it comes to a very strange conclusion immediately after. Um, um, in terms of deconstructing binaries, and this is just sort of a thing that Philip K. Dick like loves to do, where it's like, you know, if any... Like, you've read A Scanner Darkly. If any of you else have, or if you haven't, go read it. It's really good. But it's a very similar deal, where there is a person who is a junkie um, on the stuff called Substance D, and they are also a cop. Like, they're supposed to investigate and put away people, so this person, Bob Arctor, in deep cover, has, like, become an addict. Right. So you have this really weird thing where, like, the cop junkie binary breaks down, where it's like, well, which one, like, which one are you? You're both, like, mind blown. It's sort of like the, you know, what we found in Bradbury, where it's like, you know, uh, there's humans and then there's Martians. Plot twist, you are the Martians. Yeah. This is plot twist, you are the criminal. But, like, uh, bringing up, it's like, I'm I'm chief, I'm commissioner of police. Whitworth is commissioner, uh, what was it? Whitworth is commissioner, and you're a hunted criminal. Like, that's just that swift reversal, where it's like, now you're done. Right, and, and it is definitely something that uh, Dick likes to do in deconstructing a lot of the binary uh, narratives. Mm. Like what you said, is, is being able to say, well, sure, you've spent most of your life seeing this from one point of view, but in order to take the whole system down, you need to see both sides, and then at the end of that, the complete you know, disassembling and rebuilding is what begins after that. Exactly. Who knows what happens in the future of this Minority Report universe, but it's definitely going to come with the price that people know that they can't just be one or the other completely innocent or completely guilty mm. no that's actually that's perfect that leads me right into my next one and it's like this is it's great because it's a a sentence that sort of is hanging between 
two paragraphs. And it's like, you can tell it's like a thing that like Dick wrote where it's like, it's definitely like a linchpin of this story. And he like just waited to like insert it somewhere. Like it's just a bit of prose that he's like, this is definitely part of it. But like, yeah, no. So he talks about the cards and it's like, obviously they had been made out with him in mind, but he thinks to himself that there is a way to sort of prove his own innocence, you know, because of these things, these reports. Right. You know, every so often, like two of the precogs will agree very strongly that a murder is going to happen. But another one of them has like another idea about it. The, the the majority is the uh, the majority report, and the the odd man out is the minority report, the right. one that shows you the alternate, the thing that may happen. And the sentence is, the existence of a majority logically implies a corresponding minority. Yeah, that's that pretty much spells out the entire theme of everything. Yeah, and it's just like, well, yeah, and it's, you're in a world where it's like, yes, wow, while there is a majority, because there is a majority, there is a corresponding minority. Like, there's this, you know... There's that language again, sort of the either or, and I feel like that even gets taken apart by the end. Like the idea of the majority report and the minority report, like they're seen less as like antithetical and more in concert. Right. The only reason that the majority reports end up ever even being used together to make the decisions is because they happen to have the same version of events close enough that you can call those a majority and decide it's truth. Unanimity uh, of all three precogs is hoped for but seldom achieved. Right, which, you know, if all three precogs are, are receiving a report from a different future, then obviously based on, you know, that there were certain things you were going to do based on that day or your past, sure, it's possible to come up with a, ma- a majority report, but what you're seeing is not averaging, and, and you shouldn't be using it to average. They're all possibilities. Mm-hmm. No, and it's like, so, yeah, no, it, it is... It's, filled with these like sort of strange like maybe it happens this way maybe it happens this way uh when he breaks into when he breaks back into work he gets his ex-wife to help him or he gets his wife to help him which i think is great um so he goes in and he takes a look at all the reports including the minority report where he doesn't kill kaplan right and it's the second one so he's just like this is proof enough right Having been informed that he would commit a murder, Anderton would change his mind and not do so. The preview of the murder had cancelled out the murder. Prophylaxis had occurred simply in his being informed. Already a new time path had been created, but Jerry was outvoted. Yeah, Jerry the Precog, who had the vision where Anderton doesn't kill. Yeah, that's right, and and ultimately because Anderton had all three versions of the report... Uh, he he had sort of a feedback loop going on where he was given every choice by being shown what he mm. was possibly going to choose. Yeah, and it's like, this is a thing that's strange, but like, I don't think we need precogs for this type of thought. Like, as a matter of fact, I think it's like, I've done this more than once in my life where it's like, I've considered, like, I, as we all have, considered a, a series of choices that we can make or just a single choice and the things that can happen. Here's what, I ha- what would happen if I make this choice. Here's what happens if I don't. It's just we don't give them the same weight that Anderton is giving these minority and majority reports. Right, and and because this is the nature of, of science fiction, we're just kind of extrapolating, but it, it calls to mind a lot of different reports I've read about how people are recommended in times of stress where you would normally come up with one solution and then all the brain's power is focused on that being the correct solution, you're encouraged to, to try and think of three, four, or even five outcomes and be able to weigh all of those against the possibilities of what you should do mm. by being informed by what could happen. Exactly. 
No, all right. So this is um, after he gets a good look at his uh, reports. Um, his wife helps him escape the building. So she's got like she's supposed to be out looking for him. So she's got a car, like you know, a little hovercraft. So right. like they get in it and they take off and they have like a really good conversation. Like it's just really like it, and they sort of lay out philosophically like all of the questions that the story is asking. And there's a couple of points I want to read out of it, but it's like who exactly uh, Kaplan is because no one really knows him. And it's like, he's an air quotes retired general who's like part of this really weird like Hellfire Club type deal. Right. Like it's made up of, like, because they had just fought a civil war recently and the, his military is made up of, you know, generals from both sides. So it's like they fused the army. So it'd be like this really weird incense where like the Confederacy and Union armies like, like are merged and now like the generals have to like cooperate with each other, which is, which can create some Hydra type shit. Right. I feel. Um, but anyways, they get back to their conversation about pre-crime and sort of, like, the nature of error in the majority and minority reports. He asks his wife, like, what are you trying to say with all this? And she says, only this. You've convinced me that you are, that you're innocent. I mean, it's obviously that you won't commit a murder. But you must realize now that in the original report, the majority report was not a fake. Nobody falsified it. Ed Whitworth didn't create it. There is no plot against you and never was. If you're going to accept this minority report as genuine, you'll have to accept the majority one as well. Which, I kind of think that that's an interesting thing, where it's like, ah, proof that I didn't kill him. And she's like, yes, but this is three reports. If you believe that the minority report is true, then you have to realize that there is some some version of reality where you could kill him. Right, and all this time, he, th- he thought it was a simple matter of... There's one true statement, there is one false statement, and I'm going to find the solution that's true, and it's going to back up what I want to believe. And the answer is no. Mm -hmm. All of these things could be true. And if you're going to think about that about yourself in order to save your own life, you need to think about all the other people this program has affected and if it did the same thing. Mm -hmm. No, and that's actually, and it's like even more like, because it's like, and we should get into that too, like when we do the bits, like where they talk about that. Yeah. But like with this one in particular, one of the things that just really jumped out at me is like that I feel is kind of relevant to today is like sort of cherry picking your information, which I've been guilty of on more than one occasion. But it's like, no, she's like, she's super right. She's like, look, I believe that you're innocent. I believe that there's something going on here. But if you're going to say like, it's obvious the system hasn't been fucked with. Like I didn't fuck with it. You know, obviously Whitworth didn't fuck with it. I trust him. He believes in pre-crime just as much as you. And you have to accept the fact that if the minority report is real, then the majority report is real also that it is just as valid a source of information it's like and like you said it's like just because you're not willing to accept it that doesn't mean that it didn't come from just as credible a source that's right he he was willing to believe happily in in pre-crime and its absolute infallibility when it wasn't affecting him but as soon as he it affected him and he needed it to reflect his own reality, he was going to cherry pick the information that confirmed what he wanted to believe. Mm-hmm. No, and it's like I love that too because like he needed uh, he needed this harsh truth from her and uh, like from her and like also kind of from Whitworth. Like he's not here in this scene, but he's there later, and he also lends the same support because they all do believe in the pre-crime system. Um, but like, and then they talk about sort of the the main philosophical crux of the story, which. Of course he didn't. Look at it this way. If Kaplan gets a hold of that tape, the police will be discredited. Can't you see why? It would prove that the majority report was an error. Ed Whitworth is absolutely right. You have to be taken in if pre-crime is to survive. You're thinking of your own safety. But think for a moment about the system. Leaning over, she stubbed out her cigarette and fumbled in her purse for another. Which means more to you, your own personal safety, 
or the existence of the system. My safety, Anderton answered without hesitation. You're positive? If the system can survive only by imprisoning innocent people, then it deserves to be destroyed. My personal safety is important because I'm a human being. Yeah. This is exactly what we were talking about. No, that's like, and I love it too, where it's like, he's, like those two sentences where it's like, that is that is really the main philosophical argument going on here. Like Right. And, and there's a line about that as well in the movie where um, Whitwer says that he does believe pre-crime is an infallible system. He believes that the error is in human error. Mm-hmm. No, and yeah, no, that was a thing that actually endeared me to him in the film. Like, you know, that was, and it's like, I like Ed Whitwer in the short story, but I feel like <clears throat> he's the only character, uh, with the exception of the precog Agatha, who, you know, is Donna in the story. And But, like, they expanded him a bunch, and it's like, all of the ways that they expanded his character, I thought were really compelling. Like, he was my favorite for a while. He was really enjoyable in the film, especially when, you know, I mean, he was deeply religious. He wasn't at all hesitant to talk about his opinions about the system, but it also wasn't against what he believed about, it, and he was happy to contribute to it. And and the only reason that we really see his actions as being negative, or or at least having seen him as a antagonist, is because it, the movie sets it up to make it look like he's mm-hmm. the bad guy, like he is the focus of Anderton's problems. Mm-hmm. And it's not true at all. In fact, when you go back and rewatch it, he's a fantastic human being yeah. that that deserved to be in control of that system and and to be part of the checks and balances of it. No, totally. And he was, uh, yeah. And it's it's one of the things too that makes him such a cool character is because I feel like he sort of takes a really strange audience analog. Like you know, you you follow Tom Cruise around the entire movie. You watch him run. You watch him do things. He doesn't make a lot of sense uh like sort of the way that he's put together but it's like he's you know he's an action hero like that's his deal when colin farrell as whitworth comes in like he's a skeptic he is immediately like sort of poking holes in the philosophy of pre-crime and then by the middle of it totally believes it works he came in as skeptical as we were like and then was on board he almost ended up being the hero of the movie he almost did like if it wasn't for that like horrible back like you know backstabbing from Max von Sydow, like yeah, you always got to watch out for that that von Sydow backstab. Was it? I want to bring this up because this is like this is one of the things that really stood out to me because it's a it's a way around the precogs. It's a way to commit murder that the army has figured out how to do. And so like was it they they get into uh, a tussle with Fleming, who's like the dude who initially was helping Anderton avoid detection, but then Anderton realized like, oh, they're helping me avoid detection because this works in their favor. Like if they can discredit pre-crime with, you know, my actions, then, you know, if they can keep me away from police long enough, they can contin- they can they can pull this plot out. Right. If, if they can keep everybody busy and all the balls up in the air, then Anderton's never going to go to the people who actually need the information he has. Exactly. So this is uh, still coughing. Fleming seized hold of Lisa. Tossing his heavy gun to Anderton, he expertly tilted her chin up until her temple was shoved back against the seat. Lisa clawed frantically at him. A thin, terrified wail rose in her throat. Ignoring her, Fleming closed his great hand around her neck and began relentlessly to squeeze. No bullet wound, he explained, gasping. She's going to fall out. Natural accident. It happens all the time. But in this case, her neck will be broken first. But it's like, it seems strange to Anderton, what was it? Where it's like, yeah, what was it? If you just, 
tilt it or if you just like shove her out of the moving vehicle like you know does that register in the precogs as a fall like how like is there a way to kill someone where it's like oh no they just fucking fell yeah and and it's it's implied and not necessarily said but because the only people that the uh, precog division shares information with is other military units Mm -hmm. they've begun to learn how to use that data as well even Mm -hmm. if they're not the ones that originally get it which like and that's interesting where it's like you can construct you can actually construct a way around pre-crime which never gets brought up again like that's right and the movie makes a bit more of a deal about it you know in terms of creating the perfect pre-crime there's two that are almost gotten away with in the movie and the book it it seems a little bit harder and there's a lot more questions that we ask but it it does seem to point in that same direction when they get back to the pre-crime unit and he finally gets to talk to Whitwer who's like super shocked that he's coming in but it's great because he comes to the right conclusions he's like okay I know that Lisa's not plotting against me for a fact because she almost just died right now I know that this guy works for the army and that you know the and that there is a a a plot here to disprove pre-crime so I'm coming in. Whitwer, I'm coming in. So he comes in, uh, and they sort of, like, have their, like, really weird hellos where it's like, uh, like, I know I'm supposed to arrest you and stuff. And it's like, um, then you finally stop pretending this is some conspiracy of mine. Uh, I have. You think I'm, he made a disgusted face plotting to get your job? Sure you are. Everybody is guilty of that sort of thing. And I'm plotting to keep it. But this is something else, and you're not responsible. Why do you assert what were inquired? That it's too late to turn yourself in. My God, we'll pull you. Uh, we'll put you up in a camp. The weeks will pass, and Captain will still be alive. He'll be alive. Yes, Anderton conceded. But he can prove he. Uh, but we. But he can prove he'd be just as alive if I were walking the streets. He has the information that proves the majority report obsolete. He can break the pre-crime system. He finished. Heads or tails, he wins, and we lose. The army discredits us. Their strategy paid off. Yeah, and that's exactly what Kaplan has been doing the whole time, is he uses Anderton as the fall man, and in a way it doesn't really matter if it was Anderton or not, but as soon as you have somebody who's devoted enough to try and prove their innocence and stop the, the pre-crime from happening, you have perfect evidence that it doesn't work. And and that's pretty much his end game is no matter what happens, as long as he doesn't die, which is in Anderton's best interest, he mm. thinks he'll win. Yeah, no, and it's like, yeah, it, it's totally true that Kaplan has, he thinks he's worked out a foolproof system. Right, and, and what he doesn't figure on is, you know, Anderton realizing that the original report was was the future that he wanted to choose to be in that that the only way that that they could go forward is pre-crime being proven correct mm-hmm. kaplan has boxed them into a really weird place because it's like he has essentially disproved the majority report and he's making everyone work against their own interests exactly so it leads to this really this line before the shit really hits the fan Anderton says, that business out there fits with what I learned downstairs. We've got ourselves boxed in, and there's only one direction we can go. Whether we like it or not, we'll have to take it. What is it? Once I say it, you'll wonder why you didn't invent it. Very obviously, I'm going to have I'm going to have to fulfill the publicized report. I'm going to have to kill Kaplan. That's the only way we can keep them from discrediting us. You know, and he's like, why would you do that? And he's like, it's the lesser of two evils. That's what's scary about the and fascinating also about the the idea of time in this in Dick story is it wasn't so much the journey it was coming to terms with what the future ended up being and how he came to terms with that that ended up being the important part of the journey and not so much 
preventing the crime from happening, which is what you're led to believe almost for most of the story. Yeah. He had never killed a man. He had never even seen a man killed. And he had been police commissioner for 30 years. For this generation, deliberate murder had died out. It simply didn't happen. We've gone through, like, a lot of this story, and I love that we've gotten... It's got these, like, little subheadings, but this is the ninth section. And it's not until the ninth section that you that you don't really... Or, like, at least I didn't. I spent the entire time viewing pre-crime as sort of tyrannical. But once I got to this point, like, when I read that sentence, I was like or that that paragraph, I was like, huh. It just sort of broke me a little. Like, I'm just like, oh, the needle just skipped. And, um, what? Like, that's... I didn't even really stop to consider. This does sound very dystopic, but it's like, is this kind of a utopia? It it, it kind of is a utopia because they have gotten past the point of the original use for the pre-crime unit, and and they have gotten to this place where one would assume even if pre-crime were to go away, you're not going to have people wanting to go back to the way the old things were. Yeah. Just by necessity of having, you know, made this their new life and the way they live. Now, really weirdly, if this were Omelas, I might stay there. Yeah, I'm not sure I would be the person who left this Omelas. Yeah, and it's strange, because it's, like, definitely darker. (laughs) It is a lot darker, you know, we... We talked a little bit before about people being upset because they're being spied on, even if there's nothing that they're looking at that's necessarily illegal or wrong. And, you know, at first it does strike me that it would feel very limiting to be in this system because you know that you could never get away with anything. But if you weren't going to try... That benefits you. Yeah, weirdly, I never wanted to kill anyone, and I am now guaranteed that I will never be murdered. Well, as guaranteed as absolutely possible. Like, I'll take one murder in America in five years. Yeah. Like, and that's really weirdly, like, you know, and that's also tricky, though. Like, that's the that's the, that's the sweet logic that, like, you know, would lead someone from Omelas to be like, well, we've reduced suffering down to one. Yeah, the worst thing that somebody tried to do in the world of Minority Report was to make sure that they had free will and thus take that away from take that society and that utopia away from everyone Mm, is it okay i love this uh is it kaplan he gets all of the army folks together because he's going to have a rally where he's going to read the minority or minority and majority reports and he's going to straight up prove for everyone that like pre-crime is done, that the police are corrupt, and that the army is here to save you. And Anderton shows up, and he's, like, stoked, and he's just, like, stoked to see him. Uh, or, like, he's not stoked. He's very reticent to see him. He's, like, just immediately, like, I was not expecting you here. This doesn't fit in his plan this, at all. This doesn't fit in. And But he's like, you know what, hey, whatever, like, I can use this to my advantage. He's gonna make a speech. He's like, Anderton, come on, you gotta come with me. Coldly, but with a kind of repressed vehemence, General Kaplan said, I'm going to compare it to the majority report, General Kaplan signaled an aide, and the leather briefcase was produced. Everything is here, all the evidence we need, he said. You don't don't mind being an example, do you? Your case symbolizes the unjust arrests and uh, countless, the unjust arrests of countless individuals. Stiffly, General Kaplan examined his wristwatch. I must begin. Will you join me on the platform? Why? Coldly, but with a kind of repressed vehemence, General Kaplan said, So they can see the living proof. You and I, together, the killer and his victim, standing side by side, exposing the whole sinister fraud which the police have been operating. Gladly, Anderton agreed. What are we waiting for? Disconcerted, General Kaplan moved toward the platform. Again, he glanced uneasy at Anderton, as if visibly wondering why he had appeared and what he, was, and what he really knew. Uh, his uncertainty grew as Anderton willingly mounted the steps of the platform and found himself a seat directly beside the speaker's podium. You fully comprehend what I'm going to say, General Kaplan demanded. 
The exposure will have considerable, considerable repercussions. It may cause the Senate to reconsider the basic validity of the pre-crime system. I understand, Anderton answered, arms folded. Let's go. Like, I love that where he's like, this, this man, he thinks he's just got it down. The general totally thinks that he's taken Anderton off the board. You know, through, through two different things. One, through getting him hunted, and two, through clearing his name. Mm-hmm. He thinks that, you know, his endgame scenario of, you know, Enderton's no threat at this point, mm-hmm. to the point that he's willing to have him on stage with him, and the very act of, of staging this whole thing is what gets himself killed. Exactly. No, and it's, it's amazing, too, because it's like, that is, it's so insidiously brilliant, where it's like, oh man, I really just want to get those precog cops out of the way, what's the best way to do it? I just make the person who is the best example of it, the, the commissioner of police, the man who's been here since it all began... I turn that guy into a criminal, and I watch him tear his own system apart, and it's going to be great. And he's, like, super stoked, but then he shows up, he's like, oh, no, I'm here. Yeah, let's do this. And it's, like, too easy. But he's, like, so close to the end that he can't see where he is. He almost succeeded, too. He almost managed to get Anderton to act in his own best interest rather than that of the system. But, you know, Anderton does come to the conclusion that what he was originally supposed to have done was in fact the future he wanted to live in so he goes through he reads the the majority and minority reports he reads the first one the second one and he's reading the third one so the first one he murders kaplan the second one he doesn't murder kaplan and the third one as he's reading the assertions made by the first two precogs that anderson would commit a murder now here he is the automatically the automatically invalidated material i shall read it to you he whipped out his rimless glasses fitted them to his nose and started slowly to read. A queer expression appeared on his face. He halted, stammered, and abruptly broke off. The papers fluttered from his hand like a like a cornered animal. He spun, crouched, and dashed from the speaker's stand. For an instant, uh, his distorted face flashed past Anderton. On his feet now, Anderton raised the gun, stepped quietly, stepped quickly forward, and fired. So like, I I love that though, where it's like I'm gonna fucking do it, and it's I love how far into his speech he got. He's like, he reads the first two reports, and he's like, and now I'm going to prove that it's bullshit, because this third report says that I'm going to die. And halfway through doing it, he's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't really realize, because he, he's trying to invalidate pre-crime, but the inherent act of trying to meddle with the future produces unintended side effects. And also, probably, he should have read that third report before right. he got up on that podium. Or no, or, like, at least listen to this podcast, because when you're dealing with something like, you know, time traveling and, like, you know, possible futures, like, you have to consider all of the variables, and I love that the one he didn't consider was that he was going to get shot on a stand, like, (laughs) that he was going to be assassinated by the man who he was informed was going to assassinate him. (laughs) He was so shocked that he even tried to run away from it, but... Obviously, by that point, it was too late. Oh, it's so great. Like, I love that, where it's just like like a quarter to end. Like, I'm just picturing just the, like a man sitting out there. It's like, uh, this is going my... Oh, God, no. This is... Uh. So what did the third minor, the, the, the third report actually say? Uh, we can get to that in the end. What was it? There's just one more thing I sure. want to read before we get there. Uh, like, okay, so violent imagery can be fun sometimes, uh, especially when Philip K. Dick writes it. This is what happens to Kaplan. Kaplan, as the majority report had asserted, was dead. His thin chest was a smoking cavity of darkness, crumbling ash that broke loose as the body lay twitching. Sickened, Anderton turned away and moved quickly between the rise the 
rising figures of stunned army officers. The gun, which he still held, guaranteed that he would not be interfered with. He leaped from the platform and edged into the chaotic mass of people at its base. Stricken, horrified, they struggled to see what had happened. The incident, occurring before their very eyes, was incomprehensible. It would take time for acceptance to replace blind terror. Uh, as the periphery, uh, at the periphery of the crowd, Anderton was seized by the waiting police. You're lucky to get out, one of them whispered to him as the car crept cautiously ahead. I guess I am, Anderton replied remotely. He settled back and tried to compose himself. He was trembling and dizzy. Abruptly, he leaned forward and was violently sick. The poor devil, one of the cops murmured sympathetically. Through the swirls of misery and nausea, Anderton was unable to tell whether the cop was referring to Kaplan or to himself. It's a really good passage, and it really brings home how, when we were asking, is this a dystopia or not? I mean, this guy has been commissioner for 30 years, and this is the first person he's killed, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, he's never had to kill anyone, which that's already kind of, my brother's a cop. I kind of want that for all cops. I don't want anyone to have to kill anyone ever. No, I, and, and, and same with the crowd's reactions as well. If only crowds reacted that way. You know, they've mm. never seen anything like this before. No, they've never seen a murder before, so it's blind terror. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it. you know, that's the world that they live in where they haven't had to deal with seeing any of this or even consider it. So, like, this is after they work out the deal, right? Where it's like, you know, Whitworth's going to take his job and he and his wife, and he, instead of going to a camp, like, somewhere on Earth, like, he's, he's sort of worked it out that he's going to go live on the frontier somewhere out in space. But before then, Whitworth drops by and asks him, like, what's the deal with those minority reports? Like, why were there so many different versions? And Mike was the third report? That came after the minority report? Whitworth corrected himself. I mean, it came last. Mike was the last of the three, yes. Faced with the knowledge of the first report, I had decided not to kill Kaplan. That report, that produced report two. But faced with that report, I changed my mind back. Report two, situation two, was the situation Kaplan wanted to create. It was to the advantage of the police to recreate position one. And by that time, I was thinking of the police. I had figured out what Kaplan was doing. The third report invalidated the second one in the same way the second one invalidated the first. That brought us right back to where we started from. And, and, and that's what's great about this, is if you look at these reports as existing all within the same possibility of timelines, then of course him reading about each one would affect how the outcome happened. And and same way when he had made decisions about what he was going to do, that would create its own timeline before he changed his mind back. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to me because that Kaplan didn't, or it's not so much interesting, Kaplan met his end because he didn't understand this. Like, he thought if he gained the system, he thought that there's no way a man would work against his own self-interest. Right, and, and you know, we, we talked about how, regardless of their opinions, most of the characters in the story believe in pre-crime regardless of their issues with parts of it. And that was Kaplan's downfall, is he was trying to game the system, but he didn't really understand it and did honestly think it didn't work. You know, he really he really didn't foresee the true applications of trying to mess with somebody who was within that system and had access to all of that data. Yeah, no, and this was a thing about the movie that I felt like was very rushed. Where it's like, I mean, I understand, like, you know, if you give a character a tragic backstory, it's going to make you like them more. So by giving Tom Cruise, instead of making him like, and that's another thing I love, by the way, is that they cast Tom Cruise in the in the short story. He's described as being bald and old and fat. Right, which which Dick likes to do. Uh, this happens also in the original adaptation for Total Recall compared to what we ended up with, which is mm -hmm. action hero Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm -hmm. Which is still fine. Like, the, both movies work out either way, but there's something I think rather interesting about 
about having, like, you know, just, like, a dude he wouldn't expect to be your hero. <laughs> Each report was different, Anderton concluded. Each was unique, but two of them agreed on one point. If left free, I would kill Kaplan. That created the illusion of a majority report. Actually, that's all it was, an illusion. Donna and Mike previewed the same event, but in two totally different time paths. Occurring under totally different situations, Donna and Jerry, the so-called minority report and half the majority report were incorrect. Of the three, Mike was correct. Since no report came after his to invalidate him, that sums it up. Anxiously, Whitworth toted along beside the truck, his smooth, blonde face creased with worry. Will it happen again? Should we overhaul the setup? It can only happen on... It can... It can happen in only one circumstance, Anderton said. My case was unique, since I had access to the data. It could happen again, but only to the next police commissioner. So watch your step. It's a great ending. Yeah. And, and you know, I could definitely see this happening again, especially because, you know, whereas in the movie, Whitworth was killed. Mm. And, uh... Which, know. like, like fuck that for that reason. I would love to have a scene, like, at the end where, like, Tom Cruise quits pre-crime and just hands it over to, like, the nice clean-cut Colin Farrell and is like... It is your job now. Watch your stuff. It is a little bit of a missed opportunity that we didn't get to see that, you know, the, the way Whitward gets to see in the story, that maybe this wasn't what he wanted after all. You know, even though it is true he was trying to get the guy's job the whole time and not frame him, maybe he doesn't want this job so much anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and at the very least, if he does, he's going to have to expend the, expect that this could happen to him too. Yeah. No, it's, it's about taking it all in. And it's like, I love that too, where it's like when he's like, Earlier, he's like, it's not like I want your job. He's like, of course you want my job. And I want to keep my job. Like, this is not a reason for murder. Like, this is this is what an office is like. This is just what people working together are like. Like, and I know that we both agree in the same things. And I love that he also tells him, it's like, and you know what? One day, you're going to be a great police commissioner. He's like... Just not today. Yeah, he's like, just not today. He's like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have leaked the majority report. And he's like, no, you shouldn't have. That was a bad idea. But you know now. Like, you're not going to make that mistake again. Like, and I love that, too, because that's another thing that more people can learn where it's like, you're doing good at your job. Doesn't mean you can't get better. Like, yeah. So that was major- uh, that was Majority Report. That uh, was the Majority Report, our Majority Report on Minority Report, the short story, and Minority Report, the movie. Um, do you have any related readings you'd like to recommend? I definitely do. Along the lines of two different themes. One, the first being predestination, being able to cheat your fate, and the act of trying to prevent something causing it, I recommend 12 Monkeys. Mm. Uh, the uh, Terry Gilliam yeah. with Brad Pitt and um, who are the other actors in that? Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis that's yeah. right. And, you know, it, it, it kind of goes along some of the same lines with instead of uh, reports from the future, we have people from the future coming back in time and trying to either prevent, witness, or influence what ends up happening and the degrees to which they are or aren't successful. Mm -hmm. I'd recommend that. And then along the lines of trying to predict future events and stop them from happening, I'd recommend Marvel's recent event, Civil War II, Mm -hmm. where one of the characters in Inhuman has the, a similar power to the precogs in that he's able to predict events. And his first event that he predicts is Thanos attacking. And because that event was prevented and didn't happen the way he predicted, the U S government begins to use the different, visions that he has to try and prevent crimes even though it turns out that maybe they're only right less than a percent of the time Mm -hmm. and they just got right the one time that it was thoughtless yeah so i mean honestly at that point where it's like i would listen to a person who's like thanos is gonna attack and then it happens like i would probably listen to that guy a lot 
it, it's one of the better parts of the story is that characters are told that it may it, the same as in Minority Report that maybe it's just a vision of the future and it's not necessarily the future. And the answer to that is we stopped Thanos, <laughs> so it doesn't matter how likely it is or isn't this that it's going to happen. This program already paid for itself like, seventy thousand times over. So remember that whole Infinity Gauntlet deal? Yeah, that's. We, yeah. If we stop that one out of every ten times from happening, that's fine if it's only the one. No, that's a, that, those are good recommendations. Uh, was it, I have just a couple. Um, the first one, sort of like, in terms of, or like, I like to do these recommendations where it's like, you know, one lightness to the darkness, where it's yes. like, if this story was dark, uh, I, I would suggest, um, Pick Up Foundation by Isaac Asimov. Uh, the the whole trilogy is pretty good. I've only read the first two, but um, the first book in the series Foundation is about the creation of this uh, um, this new science. You know, it's sort of like pre-crime, but in this it's called uh, psychohistory. And the deal with psychohistory is that using statistics, psychology, sociology, and every discipline fed into algorithmically and then compared with itself, you can accurately predict the future. Um, but the guy who invents it also understands that inactive predicting the future you actually have to do things so that like the future will happen so like people he'll be like ah yes we have to do this and you know the people will do this and like ah yes and then a hologram of him will show up and it's like now i see that you've done this that's good because that's not the real plan this is the real plan so it's like it it is kind of creepy in that like sort of if you follow people and expect them to tell the truth basically in that you're going to have to be okay with being um manipulated like, it, albeit somewhat gently, like, you know, someone gives you a good idea and you follow and it's like, well, actually, like, I'm not trying to lead you towards a bad purpose, but like, yeah, I wasn't really honest with you about why we're here. Yeah, it's cool about being able to use that information to try and influence the future, sometimes towards the prediction itself and sometimes away from it. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, and that's the thing that's interesting. It's like the uh, precog see crimes in this where it's like, you know, I wonder if anyone's out there looking for a precog that can see the stock market. I, I know I am. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the other um, suggestion that I have would be another Philip K. Dick novel, The Man in the High Castle, um, because like this, where it's like you have two majority reports and a minority report, like these uh, three different visions, versions of the future that can happen. Uh, in The Man in the High Castle, you're actually like living in one of those alternate versions. It's um, The show is pretty good, so if you've seen that, like you probably have an idea, but it's um, a what if the Axis powers won World War II. So a lot of things are different, like the East Coast is controlled by the Nazis and the West Coast is like the Pacific States of America, which is a, a puppet government of the Japanese. Right. And there's the Germans and the Japanese are kind of in this Cold War and in this universe, there's a book called The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, which is about what if the Allies won the war? But, like, in that one, America and England are in a Cold War. And one of the characters, like, does this really weird, like, slip between dimensions. And he finds himself, I think, in ours. So, like, he's in San Francisco under, like, the, the um, under when the Embarcadero had a two-freeway thing over it. So it's like he just, like, finds himself under it. He's like, oh, my God, it's so different. But it's like, yeah, it's really weirdly, like, these three versions of reality that could have happened, you know, events willing. Yeah, and, and it's a really good primer for, uh, you know, the genre of counterfactuals as well. Yeah. Um, was it? So those, uh, the novel and the police by D.A. Miller, I... Uh, very interesting book if you're into literary criticism. Uh, just real quick aside about this book that I think is hilarious is um, he's a professor at UC Berkeley and uh, the picture of him on the back of his book is not like him in tweet or anything. It's just like him in a tank top showing off his ripped guns. 
which <laughs> that's a ringing endorsement of reading whatever the heck is actually contained in the book yeah, of that yeah. picture. <laughs> it's like pretty rip for a professor, like, and it's like I, I get it, like, and he's got that mustache, where he's like, "Hey, what's up, bro?" Like, <laughs> so yeah, he's also he's super smart. Um, but yeah, so uh, D. Muller and uh, Foucault's Discipline and Punishment. Yeah, so that was a fun trip through the mirror. Yeah, this time through the mirror, we got to see a little bit of what the future holds in store for us. And uh, at the very least, what we know is is that one of the reports might have me shooting you. But all of them are lies. That's what I learned. <laughs> They're all just illusions, man. Like, uh, that's what he learns in the end. All the reports are illusions. Well, speaking of that, uh, speaking of illusions, uh, or mirages, let us vanish. I have been Bryce Skidmore. And I have been David Leskin. And I'm going to interrupt your outro. Uh, uh, because there's a thing you need to talk about that you haven't been talking about. What? It's movie-specific, and it's an incredible artistic direction that they chose uh, to do in the film. During the actual scene where Anderton murders Crow, or, well, Crow gets himself murdered, but you get the idea. Uh, the precog, Agatha, in the film, what was her name, Donna in the book? Yeah. Uh, is being raped. Wait, what? <laughs> I, I didn't really notice it in the first time, she lands on the bed in a sexual position and reacts to all the violence in the film as if she is being violently raped. Uh, is, which is it, it, it? It's absolutely incredible. Just punctuates the, th- the 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 violence of the scene, but also that these precogs experiencing murder is 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 like them being violently violated. Uh, <laughs> Over and over again, and when, she, and when Agatha's actually in the room with the murder, it's it, it's a visceral, terrifying kind of rape. Yeah, well, no, and it's like, it's her body language is definitely coded that way, but I almost think, I'm not going to say it's, like, worse than rape, but there's sort of a beyondness to it that's, like, like, these, these people have been, like, sort of imprisoned against their will most of their lives, stuck in these chairs, fed narcotics, and made to see, live only in murders that they see from afar. And now you've just kidnapped her and forced her to watch one up close. Like that's yeah, super that, wrong. It, it's that it's a violation that seems like it, it isn't just you know being shocked by the violence around. She's she's physically experiencing the anger and violence. It's um, it's in surround sound, yeah. I mean, the actress is Samantha Morton, and she does this incredible job of embodying uh, the attack. Showing that, and, you know, and her body language is very much as if someone were physically, uh, you know, raping her on top of her. So when she lands on the bed, just kind of brings back imagery from the start of the movie uh, with the you know, wife is having an affair, and they, she just wanted to go on the bed. It kind of brings that mm-hmm. back, and, she, you know, Samantha Morton ends up on the bed on all fours, on, yeah, no, on, screaming in pain. On a, on a bed full of pictures of what we can only assume are raped and murdered children. Yeah. Which, like, that actually adds a whole new dimension to it, because it's like she is a kidnapped child. Yeah. Just like... Wow. Just I didn't like think Anderton, about that. Yeah, just like yeah. Anderton's that's, kid. And, and that's, that's definitely a movie-specific kind of thing, uh, but it was... I, I thought she really nailed that. I, I totally missed that when I you know, saw when this was in theaters. But upon rewatching, I went, oh, wow, that is, that is definitely kind of the underlying symbolism they were going for, and it is it is potent. Also, Samantha Morton works with Colin Farrell a lot, I found, on her IMDb. Yeah. <laughs> was it actually my favorite movie that she did was, I don't know if you guys had seen it, but it's the um, it's a period film with uh, Johnny Depp called The Libertine. I don't think I've seen The Libertine. It's a really good movie. He plays, uh, I want to say the Earl of Southampton, but I think I'm wrong. Uh, anyways, he was a poet in the court of, I believe, Charles II, and he, like, loved to write these, like, raunchy poems that were all about dicks and fucking, and he was super into aesthetics and super into theater, and the whole plot with him and her is, like, he goes to the, the theater all the time, and he makes this sort of, like, this... 
like she's all that bet with one of his friends where it's like I bet you can't turn her into like the latest sensation on theater and he's like fucking watch me so he like bribes the person who owns the theater is like I'm giving that one acting lessons so she shows up like she's like and she's like oh what do you want like you know she thinks he like is buying her body like she's like wanna fuck he's like no I'm going to teach you how to act because unfortunately I am so fucking addicted to theater that only that something that mimics the truest emotions can have me so I'm going to teach you how to act and she like she performs like Ophelia and Lady Macbeth and she has like a lot of brilliant little performances within a performance wow so that's she's a terrific actor that sounds like a multi-layer performance I'll have to check that out anything else did we talk about the cottage Oh no, we didn't. Not talk about the cottage, but I love it. Max von Sydow's wonderful accent, which is sometimes American, mostly British, and always annoying. <laughs> it, it it works for the character, but it is it is definitely a choice. Yeah. And and cottage is where it does it doesn't work. That 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 is the one word that breaks that accent apparently. <laughs> It's gonna haunt my nightmares. Cottage. Yeah, then he gets murdered by Kylo Ren, and it's just it's it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> then the movie it's it's a confusing mess of lightsabers, and Kylo Ren comes in there and kills him, and then uh, he dies. He dies a bunch of other times. He you just watch Max Van Sydow die just over and over again, <laughs> as, as the precogs see it, you know, dying in all these different films. Yeah, it's it's a very very meta textual layer. Sorry, sir. The precogs are broken. They're pretty much just seeing Max von Sydow deaths all the time, constantly. Uh, the Minority Reports are just Sean Bean deaths. It's a very, it's a very depressing. They do uh, not agree YouTube with video. each other at all. Actually, this is a that kind of made me think though. I wonder if there's like anyone who appears in multiple Majority Reports. Like if there's just someone who it's like, who's the victim? Oh, it's this person. Again? <laughs> what kind of asshole is he? Yeah, you gotta wonder, since they're not doing post-crime investigation anymore, if they don't end up following up with the same victims multiple times, they're like, you're trying to kill her with the scissors again? Jeez, man, don't you learn? Uh, you know who shows a majority report? Who? Just all the time. Just white people. White people. They just tend to, tend to show up in the majority report. <laughs> Not 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 that majority report, but just the report of the majority. No, that's actually one thing that I kind of wondered about. If there is some kind of strange like uh, racial coding with calling it a minority report, like the thing that proves your innocence in an overwhelming system. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's Phil K. Dick, so that's that's definitely definitely a layer he could have put in there. Mm. Um, it it seems they don't call the it book. the secondary or alternate; they call it the minority. Yeah. Uh, but it does it does seem like in, in the book it's a little more judicial and less racial. The way he's presenting it, it's sort of like, here's, you know, the main opinion of the dissenting opinions as the majority of minority reports. But, yeah, I think there's probably, you know, Phil Kiddick's relationship with law enforcement was not great. It was, it was fraught. <laughs> uh, actually, no, there's, um, have you guys ever seen Prophets of Science Fiction? No. If you ever get a chance, it's a wonderful series where they just talk about, um, like, people who are just sort of masters of the genre and sort of their weirdness. But Philip K. Dick's life, just the amount of time the police were called to his house because he was having a psychotic episode or something like that, or, you know, just, like, was you know, talking shit because he was too stoned. Like, he, he led a very interesting drugged out life. I would agree with that. I think that Philip K. Dick's life is stranger than fiction. Yeah. And you can go down that rabbit hole just as much as any of his actual works. No, and it's like, he writes about cops a lot, so he's definitely fraught with this. Like, and I don't think necessarily in a bad way, because I feel like both in this and uh, Scanner Darkly, like, I don't necessarily hate the police. Yeah, I mean, you have kind of good and bad cops it is 
his thing. You Which, have, it's you, like you have good and bad junkies. It's like Philip yeah. K. Dick doesn't think that... It's like, almost like he doesn't like binary. It's, it's almost exactly <laughs> like that. Yeah, I mean, it, in the Minority Report, you've got... In the Minority um, Retort. In, in, in the, <laughs> um, the, the small Apple Tort, uh, <laughs> you have you know, a corrupt police commissioner uh, who's then replaced by Commissioner Gordon, uh, who, who approves of the Batman. Uh, you have a corrupt police commissioner because the, the leadership is corrupt and you know, it's all built on a lie, whereas in Scanner Darkly, you have a you know, pretty by-the-books good cop degrade into something barely human or conscious um, by uh, drug use. So that's, I think that... I think Scanner Darkly is less about police. No, it's... Yeah. Yeah, the police are kind of your audience entry into this drug world, and you can see how you know a, a fairly normal, straight-laced person who's trying to find the truth eventually just becomes this, yeah. this incoherent shell by the mm-hmm. end. I, know, I also think it's sort of like, it sort of begs the question in an opposite direction, where it's like, I think we... Because when the story starts, he's he's already like chilling with Donna, like trying to score some uh, substance D, which we know he's already taking, so it's like... We kind of start the story when he's already in full junkie mode, and then we watch him sort of, like, regress into being a cop, which usually I feel like that narrative is the opposite. Like, we get the story of the fall, not... It's like, you know, oh, a, ju- a cop becomes a junkie, or a junkie becomes a cop. Right. Like, what, what you know, is like, he starts out, he's definitely a, a cop. He's, he's undercover, so he's like, I need to take well, this stuff. Well, that's in the, in the film, cover. though. No, that's in the book. No, in the book, it's like they're chilling at the they're chilling at the mall, trying to score some substance D, and they're waiting on Donna. I'm pretty sure. I no, no, totally no. In wrong. the book, he starts as, as an investigator. Yeah. yeah. No, the, the 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 movie is like in terms of plot beats, it's actually pretty spot pretty on. It just it, it misses a, a lot of the point of the Scanner Darkly because uh, it's like oh, it's a big government conspiracy at the end. I'm like, yeah, no, I I know, I I, I read the book. That's not that's not the ending. The ending is he's gone there's nothing of him left he is incoherently babbling and he he sees the fact that it's a government conspiracy and it doesn't matter it's just another drop in the bucket of his drugged out addled brain that's the point of scanner darkly is that he starts relatively normal and he's just taking as much of the substance as he needs to to not get busted as an undercover cop and then that that just spirals the more and more he takes it oh uh on that note shall we have a cigarette sorry i had to interrupt your thing no that's my thing Yes, I, had, I had to put my thing in your thing. Oh. Zit. Thank you for listening to our episode on Minority Report. Be sure to tune in in a couple of weeks when we will be dropping our episode on Joanna Russ's We Who Are About To. Uh, I have been Bryce Skidmore. If you like us, go ahead and follow us on Twitter. Uh, I am on Instagram, and Luskin and I are both on Twitter. So, yeah, uh, go ahead and look us up. Uh, also join our Facebook group. And have a wonderful evening.